ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John as we continue our uh, series through 1 John, uh, moving through this letter. And as, as we move through this letter, if you've been with us, especially from the beginning of, of, this, uh, of this book, 1 John, uh, you'll realize how cyclical it is, how repetitive it is. John keeps coming back to the same things over and over. And this week, I find myself tempted as a preacher to think, you know, how do I just keep preaching the same thing over and over? We want to stick with the text. We don't want to invent new things to say. And in fact, I, I'm reminded of the fact that uh, good coaches are repetitive. Good coaches don't just keep coming up with new stuff. They try to get their players to return to the to the what? The fundamentals, right? Uh, it's going back to that, the fundamental swing, the fundamental form for that shot or whatever it is that the the player or the athlete is doing. Uh, you know, in, in Karate Kid, Mr. Miyagi had two rules, right? A rule number one is karate for defense only. And rule number two, first learn rule number one. And so uh, the Apostle John is like Mr. Miyagi, but uh, to another level where he just keeps uh, hammering home. This letter could be one chapter long, but he, it's, it's longer than that because he keeps returning to themes. And it's almost like John is saying, I really need you to get this. And the reader's like, uh-huh. And he's like, no, I really need you to get this. Right, right, right. I got it. I really need you to get this. And so as a church, uh, if you feel like, uh, hey, why are we lingering on these themes? It's because John is lingering on these themes. So the real question is, why is John lingering on these themes? Something as simple as the call to love one another. Uh, we're in chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 24. And if you see there in verse 11, it makes it really clear. Actually, actually let's back up to verse 10, which is the last verse that we covered last week, and you'll see how it seamlessly moves right into today's text. So starting in verse 10 of chapter 3, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. So the two groups. And how do you know who, which group you're in? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother or her brother or sister. Verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Again, I'm, he's not making up something new. He's not concerned with writing something they've never heard of before. He, he's not trying to publish a book. He's not trying to get a PhD and have an original contribution to some area of research. I want to write to you about what you've already heard. You've heard a thousand times, and you've heard it from the very beginning. You heard it right away. You knew as soon as you became a Christian that this is what the Christian life is about, loving one another. Why does he have to repeat this? For the same reason why we have to repeat it. Because uh, we feel like we can move past the fun fundamentals and move on to other things. What the world needs to know is our opinion on the COVID virus, our opinion on shelter in place, our opinion on the upcoming elections, our opinion on politics. And when we get all caught up in the shuffle of those things, we miss rule number one. Right? One of the disappointing things that I think I'm seeing as social media becomes bigger and bigger, which I mean, it's huge is the Christian's presence in social media. It's so easy to blast people on Facebook, people that you don't see, people that you're not next to. And the more we experience this isolation, 
the easier it will be for, for people to, uh, in a cold way, put people on blast that are out there in cyberspace somewhere. You know, a lot of these people that are really vitriolic, uh, use so somewhat hateful speech. You know, if you get them in a restaurant at a table and you're ordering some food, they're not total jerks. But for some reason, when people aren't right in front of you, it's easy to just assume the worst of other people and put them on blast. And I see Christians doing it. When non-Christians are doing it, I expect that. It's when fellow ministers are doing it. It's when members of my own church are doing it. It's when I find myself doing it, is assuming the worst of other people. And in our speech, uh, betraying the fact that our hearts aren't in the right place. And we're losing, we're, we're missing out on rule number one. It's uh, something that he wants you to understand is really important. And he doesn't want you to go, okay, love one another. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Let's move on to something else. Let's unpack the Trinity, John. I need to understand that better. Can you please help me understand predestination? No, be quiet. Love one another. And he wants you to understand how weighty this is, how serious this is. Because he knows the reader's going to see this and go, yeah, we love one another. Um, you know, I don't, I don't murder people. Interesting. Because he's going to use murder as the example as to why you do need the reminder. So he brings up Cain. And you remember that, you know, when you read uh, Genesis and Adam and Eve have Abel and Cain and Abel is righteous. He's trying to uh, bring the, the, the appropriate sacrifices to the Lord. His heart is in the right place. And Abel is uh, bringing sacrifices to the Lord on the basis of faith. Uh, and Cain is, Cain is not operating by faith. Cain is not operating by a desire to be righteous or a desire to conform to God's rules. God, Cain wants to do whatever he wants to do. And God comes and warns him, uh, Cain, you don't want to do what's righteous. And what's happening is sin is crouching and it wants to take over you. You have to master it, Cain. Cain didn't master it. And he murders his brother. God accepted his brother's sacrifice, didn't accept his sacrifice, and he was hateful toward his brother, and he committed the first murder. And when God approaches him, uh, you know, Cain isn't repentant about it. He's like, what am I, my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's shepherd? Am I my brother's protector? Is my purpose to preserve my brother's life? And see, that that's what, that's what Genesis is helping you to understand. The reason why he murdered his brother is because he doesn't see himself as a protector of his brother. And what John is saying is you're supposed to be that protector. And so he says in the, uh, verse 12, we should not be like Cain. Here's what love does not look like. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And so you can see there that what John is trying to communicate is that the answer to Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper, is yes. You are your brother's keeper. You are responsible for your brother and your sister. You're responsible for their welfare. And so that role is something that Cain missed, and because he missed it, uh, he was on this path toward murderous 
behavior. And why did he murder him? John asks. Why did, why did Cain murder him? Was he a, a serial killer in the making? It wasn't just because Cain was evil, which he was, but it wasn't just because Cain was evil that, that he murdered Abel. If Abel was also evil, he would have left him alone. So it's not enough that Cain was evil. It's that Abel was righteous. And so he murdered him because he was righteous and because he, uh, because Abel was righteous and he was evil. His own deeds were evil and his brother's deeds were righteous in verse 12. And he says in verse 13, this is why the world hates Christians. It's, it's not just because the world is bad. It's because Christians are, are good. And there's probably jealousy mixed in there, but underneath it all, righteousness hates evil. Light hates darkness. And so he's saying that's expected of the world. Don't be surprised that the world does that. But you should be surprised if someone claims to be a Christian and does that. So when Christians behave on social media the same way that non-Christians behave, that should be concerning because we're supposed to be different. And so he draws the, 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 the example from Cain's life, not so that they go, well, that, that has nothing to do with me. I'm not a murderer. I haven't killed anybody. But you'll notice that uh, what, what he's trying to communicate to you is that the opposite of love is not indifference. The opposite of love is hatred. And hatred can culminate in murder. But before you reach that point of physically murdering somebody, you're, you can already be on a murderous path in your heart. I mean, Jesus taught this in the Sermon on the Mount, that adultery lies in the heart, murder lies in the heart, and even in the things we say, the way you talk to your brother or your sister can reveal a murderous heart. And so he says uh, quite clearly that uh, the world acts this way, and that's to be expected, but it's not to be expected of the way that Christians act. And so he doesn't want you to think that uh, there's loving people and then indifferent people, but he, again, in his very black and white way of writing things, there's loving people and then hateful people. And there's not really an in-between there. The only reason why we think there's an in-between is because we think there's loving people and then people that are just kind of, they're not loving, but they're not particularly hateful. And then you've got murderers. And he's saying, no, when you're not living in an active posture of love toward people, you're a murderer in your heart. That might seem like a tough pill to swallow. But what he's saying is that uh, a murderous heart is a, an evidence that someone's not abiding in God. And so this is the practice of sinning that he's talking about. And he's explaining that Cain is a model of those who have passed, who have not passed out of death. Look at verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love is still in death. In other words, if you're a Christian, you go to church, you do Christian things, but you only like people that like you, and you're really quick to chop people out of your life that are inconveniences, 
you're probably a fake Christian. You're still stuck in death. You cleaned up life on the outside. Everybody does that. The athlete that gets caught using drugs and he wants to restore his public image and goes to rehab, he can clean things up on the outside. Is he really changed or is he only doing those things to reclaim the fame that the audience can offer him? In other words, he still worships himself and he cleans up his life to worship himself. Christ people that claim Christianity do that all the time. Church is just another AA. But, but what he's saying is, whoever does not love abides in death. And look at verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Well, I didn't plunge a knife into anybody. Yeah, but John is still putting you in the murder category because there's two, there's two groups. There's not three groups. There's not the loving, the evil, and then in the middle, there's like the indifferent people. There's the loving and the hating. And if our lives demonstrate a consistent pattern of hateful speech, hateful behavior, dissing people, cutting people off, putting ourselves first, and only surrounding ourselves, listen, there's the, the, the bookshelves are full of supposedly Christian books that will tell you, you've got to stop surrounding yourself with haters and start surrounding yourselves with people that are pro-you. Where's the verse for that? Love, the pe love even your enemies. So it's not just about tolerating people. It's about actively loving people and not just the people that are lovable. You'll find pretty quickly that when you start hanging out in church and living lives in fellowship with other believers, believers are annoying. We have idiosyncrasies and habits and we don't always act the best. You're going to have to love first, not only love in response to someone loving you first. And so when we exhibit hateful behavior, verse 15, we are in the murderer category. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. If that scares you, that's okay. If you look at your life and ask yourself, are you loving? If loving is the last way that somebody would describe you, that's a problem. That, that is a problem. Do we ever do unloving things? Yeah, that's, that's true of everyone. But it's, it's a life that exhibits a pattern of uh, hatred toward our brothers. And so he makes it pretty clear as, what, as to what love does not look like. Love doesn't look like Cain. But now he brings in the positive example. Love does look like Christ. Now, look, look at how extreme John is. On the one hand, he's saying, when you are not abiding in Christ, you're a murderer. I mean, if, any, if, if somebody said that today, if this wasn't written in a verse, we'd be like, you are such an exaggerator. There's murderers, and then there's, you know, people that just are mean on Facebook. And John is just lumping everybody together. The person that just lashes out at people on Facebook, Facebook calls them names because they don't agree with them politically. People are useful idiots. People are jerks. What a bunch of morons for voting the other way. He's lumping that all together with people on death row for murder. One big group. On the other side, it seems like he's exaggerating too, because by love, he doesn't mean simple little expressions that you are kind, simple expressions that you're a nice person. But rather, instead of exhibiting hateful behavior by taking the life of someone else, the Christian is the person who exhibits loving behavior by putting one's own life 
on the line for someone else. It's the opposite extreme. So that love doesn't look like Cain, but love does look like Christ. So the positive example is he doesn't want to just say, just don't be Cain. He wants you to say, but be Christ. And so verse 16 to 18, uh, he gives us the positive example after giving us the negative example. What does it look like? What should be striving for? By this we know love, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us. How do we know that's Christ? <laughs> who, else laid down, who else laid down their life for you? Uh, of course he's talking about Jesus. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So in other words, we don't get to just claim Jesus' sacrifice for us and go, whew, I, I just got out of hell for free. That's amazing. And then not exhibit that same self-sacrifice on the behalf of others. We adopt the posture that got us in. The way that God saved us through Jesus Christ is the way that we're also expected to live. So by this we know what love is. That he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So if the example of Cain was to show us how serious this is, Christ's example also shows us how serious it is, but he also shows us how specific it is. So that we don't get to just look at our lives and go, yeah, I'm pretty nice. My neighbors like me. I have a lot of Facebook friends. But do, are you sacrificial toward yourself? Do you put others' interests before your own? This is just basic Christianity. Christianity 101. Are we missing it? Do we get it? When this call is over, do we close the laptop and still need another sermon on love? You're going to get one because we're not done with 1 John. Cain is the negative example. Christ is a positive example. But Christ's example is, is specific. It's a self-sacrificing love on the behalf of others. How many marriages, how many marriage problems would be saved if husbands just honored Ephesians 5.25? Love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He didn't give himself up for the church when the church earned it. He didn't give himself up for the church when the church was beautiful enough, when the church uh, started it first, when the church demonstrated that they were worthy of the love. You just give it. And so some of you guys might be waiting for your wife to grow up. You, you grow up first. You're Christ in the marriage. I think a lot of the marital problems and issues, we talk about communication, disagreements about finances. You know, she supports this candidate. I support this other political party. We disagree about this whole shelter in place thing. And so we argue a lot. Uh, why don't you start off by dying to your desire to win every argument. Start there. That'll put you in the posture of listening where she's coming from, right? And this spills out into every area of life. The posture of not assuming that everyone else is a jerk, everyone else is wrong, everyone else is dumb because they didn't read the articles you read, but instead listening, I might be dumb. Right? I might be the one that needs to, to learn. And adopting a posture that puts the other person first. Let me pass you the microphone. I wish you would just listen to me, but you know what? I'm going to give you what I wish for. I'm going to die to that desire and give you the benefit of that desire. And so that what works in a marriage works across the board. How many friendships would be saved 
when one party doesn't just drop the friendship because the other one ticked them off? Why not book a time to sit down and listen to what the other person, so put the other person first and not assume that you were right in the situation. Maybe assume that the other person is right. Give them the benefit of the doubt. And maybe they were wrong, but, but to, to not just dump the friendship because of it, but to give up your life, give up your right to be heard. And so we don't claim rights with each other. We give rights to each other. That's how marriages are saved. That's how marriages flourish. That's how friendships are saved. That's how friendships flourish. Maybe for many of us, our, our best friendships exist outside of the church. Is that a problem? By this, will they know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. The, 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 the distinguishing mark of Christian fellowship is Christ's love. So how is it possible that we get along better with people that don't have Christ's love than we do with people that do have Christ's love? I'll tell you why. The reason why is because we still don't understand what a good friendship is. Another reason why is because uh, we, we allow uh, petty differences to get in the way. And so we we get along better with people that agree with us on politics than we do with people that agree with us on Christ. That's a lack of love because one of those does not carry weight with the other one. I love this quote that I found today when I was uh, uh, studying this passage or what I, what I found this week. Uh, it's by a commentary. Uh, on first john listen listen to what he says uh it's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital h than it is to love individual men and women especially those who are uninteresting exasperating depraved or otherwise unattractive loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular I mean, did that stab you like it stabbed me? We can all talk about love, loving people. I love people. We love the world. We want world peace. But when an individual shows up who's a pain in the neck, <laughs> that's, that's when you prove that you're loving, when you can put that person first. Think about attractiveness. We think we're above that. When you're watching a movie and someone shows up and doesn't fit that Hollywood image, is the first reaction like, oh, that person kind of, why'd they cast that person? Oh, that person looks weird. That person is ugly. We think like that because we're, that's, that's the broken part of our humanity. And we are very tempted to put beautiful things first and ugly things second or last or marginal. Useful things first and things that aren't useful to us, put them to the side. The people that make us laugh, they're funny, I have a better chance of striking up a friendship with us. People that don't get humor, harder to strike up a friendship. Why? Because, well, that person doesn't make me laugh. Not as useful. And so it's easy to talk about love in a general sense. Yeah, we love people, but it's when individuals show up in your life. That's the chance to demonstrate love. So we're not talking about loving humanity with a capital H, but loving individual humans with a small H. That's where it is shown. Even as he puts it, uninteresting people or exasperating people. So he gives a real specific example in verse 17. 
I talked about how we use our language uh, and how we express ourselves toward other Christians that don't agree with us on things. He uses a different example. Uh, but if anyone has the world's goods, you have money, you have clothes, you have shelter, you have stuff, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And so uh, he's imagining a scenario that's, that's pretty simple. Somebody needs something. You have the ability to meet that need, and you don't meet it. Now, you can fill in the blank with the excuses. Well, if I did that for that person, I'd have to do it with every other person. Well, that person put themselves in this situation. You know, I, I, I didn't put myself in that situation. That's why I have stuff. But that person shouldn't have lived the lifestyle that they lived. And that's why he's stuck in that spot. Well, whatever you got to tell yourself, man. But that's wrong. Somebody has a need. You have the ability to meet that need. He's not asking you to, to, to ask the person to fill out a resume or to fill out an application. He's saying you have the ability to meet a need, especially now, especially within the fellowship of the church. So this is, this is not a, a, a verse that's about going out into the world and trying to find every meet, need that you can meet. I think it has implications for that. But the immediate application is within the fellowship of Christ, uh, it's easy for us to turn away from needs. Um, and it might not be an explicit denial, but it might be like, well, I'm too busy. And we allow our minds to focus on other things rather than to try to do our best to meet those needs. Uh, and so he doesn't want us to love just in talk or in word. He wants us to love in deed, in action, and in truth. And so anyone who, uh, any, anyone can talk the faith. Anyone can talk Christianese. You just learn it. You just hang out at church for a little while. But the truth is revealed over time. Uh, I was talking with uh, Tina about this uh, this week. And she was uh, reminding me of this, uh, these handcrafted mugs that she loves. And it's hard to explain. I should have probably brought one down. It, the way that it's formed, it, it almost has to be handcrafted for it to work the way it's supposed to work. It has a very particular kind of handle where your hand can kind of fit into the, the mug itself. And it, it's, you know, warm and whatever. I don't know. I don't drink coffee. Tina loves them. But there's these online knockoffs, and you can't tell it's a knockoff by looking at the pictures on Amazon or whatever. It looks the same. It's not until you get it in the mail and try to hold it that you realize this is not it. This is, this is a knockoff, okay? Uh, there are a lot of knockoff Christians. At first glance, kind of from a distance, they look Christian. They do Christian-y type of stuff. It's not until you actually spend time with them, close up, hold them, so to speak, that you can tell this isn't the real deal. And what, what John is trying to communicate is he's writing to a people who spent time with a lot of Christians, so-called, who taught the word of God, learned the word of God. These are like professors. These are pastors. These are elders. These are deacons. These are small group leaders, people who handle the word of God. And then they left. And he's trying to explain to them the reason why they left is they never really were it. They were like the Amazon catalog. And then when it comes in the mail, you're like, wait a minute, this thing is machine manufactured. It's not the real deal. And so it's discouraging and it's disheartening, but he wants to make sure that you understand 
there's an in and there's an out. And it's not impossible to tell who's in and who's out. It might take time, but over time, your baptism and your profession of faith is proven. It's evidenced. It's shown in very particular ways. Do you come across opportunities to meet the needs of your own brothers and sisters in Christ? And do you, do you have a tendency to dodge those opportunities? Do you bristle at them? Is it hard for you to think of it or not? So talk is cheap. The truth is revealed over time. And the, here's the point of this passage. If those things are true, the person who's not in Christ has a murderous, hateful heart that spills out in different ways. But the person who is in Christ has a self-sacrificial posture toward other people. If that's true, then love is evidence that we abide in God. Love is evidence that we abide in God. Look at 19, verse 19. He says, by this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Here's how we'll know we're of the truth. And here's how our hearts will be reassured before him. What does he mean? Well, everything that has come before this is how we know. Are you like Cain or are you like Christ? That's how you know. And it might sound oversimplistic, but John is very simple. And there's this group and that group. There's black and white. There's light and dark. There's love and hate. And you will prove yourself to be of one of those groups or the other. And so he says, here's how we not uh, wish or hope or kind of can try to sort of figure out. No, here's how we know we're of the truth and reassure our heart. Uh, the word behind reassure there is normally translated as persuade or convince. So our hearts might feel sometimes unconvinced. What convinces us? Some realities that we can look around us and say, okay, I'm in actually, you know, there, there's evidence of it. But sometimes your heart may not jive with that. Sometimes your heart might condemn you and you might feel like I'm not as loving as I should be. Uh, there's really good news for that. And you'll notice that he doesn't say when your heart condemns you, uh, you just got kicked out. What he's saying in verse 20, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and God knows everything. And I think there's a you know, a couple different ways that people take that. God is greater than your heart who condemns you because God condemns you greater? Well, that's true. Uh, whatever your heart condemns you about, you're probably worse than your heart is actually telling you. I mean, we, we're, we are more problematic than we actually think. And God knows everything. He knows more about your sinfulness than you do. You know, you're only, your heart is only condemning you about the things you remember. And it's only condemning you about the things that you remember that you agree are sinful. But God's, God, he knows everything. He knows everything you did. And of all the things you did, he, and he knows uh, which ones are actually coming from a sinful heart. But I think it's also true that God is greater than that condemnation by saving you from that condemnation. He's able to overcome that condemnation by what he provides. How do we know that? We knew that back in verse 16. Jesus laid down his life for you. Right, So God provides something to overcome that condemnation, which is amazing. And so, yes, you're going to feel your heart sometimes telling you uh, that things aren't what they should be, that you're not loving the way you should be loving. But if God has overcome that for you and you're abiding in God, 
then the fact that you're sensing that probably means that you're in and that you're progressing. You're not practicing that hatefulness because you sense that heart condemnation. People who are in darkness don't sense that heart condemnation. They feel like they're free. And so this is actually a, a positive thing. The fact that uh, God provides this propitiation for us uh, that we see in verse 16, this laying down his life for us. So God solves the heart problem. And as God solves the heart problem, it leads to confidence, not doubt. I recently had an exchange with a, a friend on Facebook who posted something about other Christians who disagree with him politically. And it was pretty nasty. And so I put a comment in there and said, hey, man, there are other Christians, co-laborers in the gospel that are faithful, faithful brothers in Christ and don't agree with you. And here you are calling them names, essentially. That brother took down the post, replaced it with an, a public apology and then DM me uh, in private and apologized to me. Now, would I say that person is not a Christian because they use hateful speech? No, I'd say that person is a Christian because uh, his heart sensed it. And he allowed God to overcome that condemnation by being, uh, be adopting a posture of obedience and repentance. And so that's the good news, that it's not a perfect track record that John is talking about. He's talking about people that are uh, changeable and growing and maturing in the way that they're able to love their brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I commend that brother uh, for demonstrating that he's a brother. And then in 22 to 24, uh, he, he gets specific again. Here's a function of when you're really in and you know that you're in, you have an effective prayer life. So he says in verse 22, uh, or we'll back up to 21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Confidence like what? Well, in your prayer life. Whatever, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So this affects your prayer life. When you come before God, you come before God with confidence or doubt. You come before God like, is he going to really listen to me? Or is he a God who listens and responds? And John is saying the Christian is the person who recognizes that they have confidence before God and not a reason to doubt. Now, in a later sermon, when we get to chapter five, I'm going to unpack why this does not mean that the prayer life of the Christian is a blank check. Well, whatever your little heart desires, God is going to give it to you. Just ask him for more money. Just ask him for a bigger house. Just ask him for a better job. And God fills in the blank check and you get whatever you want. It does not mean that. But what I want to, uh, what I, what I want to score with you in this verse is it looks like and is often taken that this verse is saying the better you obey, the better chance you have of your, your prayers getting answered. Because look at the language. If your heart does not condemn you, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him. Why? Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So if you keep his commandments, your prayers will get answered. If you disobey his commandments, your prayers won't get answered. If you do what pleases him, then he'll answer your request. If you displease him, he won't answer your request. And there's almost like this, uh, this scale, like the better you please him this week, 
the better chance you have of him answering. And I, I don't think that's what John is getting at. Again, think about how John doesn't have any middle groups. He, in John's mind, there's not the unsaved and then the barely saved and then the sort of teenager Christian that still has a lot to learn and then the spiritual elite that really obey. That's not on, on John's mind. What is on John's mind? There's the people who are in darkness and people who are in light, people who abide in God, people who do not have fellowship with God. There are people who are murderous in their heart and people who are self-sacrificial in their heart. There are people who disobey God's commands and people who obey God's commands. So what he's saying in this verse is there are people who do not have the right to pray. There are people who do not have the right to have any confidence before God. God does not listen to their prayers. And then there are people to whom God does listen to their prayers. And it's not based on how well you obey the commandments. It's based on the fact that you do obey the commandments. And why do you do that? Because you abide in God. That's the confidence we get in verse 22. The confidence is not your performance this week. The confidence is in how God is greater than your heart and has overcome that condemnation with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in verse 16. That's your confidence. And the people that are in that confidence obey. Uh, Christians are obeyers and non-Christians are disobeyers. And people that live a life of disobedience, they can call themselves Christians. They can wear Christian t-shirts. They're not it. But people who do, they are. They are it. And that's his commendation to you for you to understand that you are in Christ and that someone who's in Christ, someone who abides in God and God abides in you, you have a prayer life that works and that prayer life works because you're in a relationship with God and other people's prayer lives don't work because they're not in a relationship with God. And we'll unpack in a, in a little, uh, in a few sermons now, what that means uh, to ask and receive, because that takes unpacking. But he's not saying it's based on your performance. He's saying it's based on Christ's performance that brought you in to fellowship in the first place. And so obedience is the evidence of abiding, and abiding is necessary for prayer. Therefore, obedience is necessary for prayer in the sense that you are a Christian. You're an obedient person overall. And so you see it here. What are the commands that he's talking about? Is he talking about fulfilling individual commands? He tells us the commands that are on his mind. In verse 23, and this is his commandment. What are the commandments that we do? How do we please him? Believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. See, again, you either do believe or you don't believe. This isn't something week by week you can check off to see if God will answer your prayer. You're either in or you're out. You believe this about Christ or you don't. It's a true confession to you or it isn't. But he puts it together with uh, loving one another. We believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. In other words, it's not enough to just say you believe, but if you truly believe, it changes your behavior. Belief changes behavior. Belief guides behavior. And so if you really believe that Jesus Christ is God's son, and you really have confessed him, and he's really your savior, he's really your Lord, well, then you act like it. And the way you act like it is by loving is by loving one another, just as he commanded us. I get that a lot of us have really grown up in really rough areas and rough times and rough places. 
and your dad never hugged you and your mom ran away and your siblings beat you up and your friends left you for dead, whatever your story, I understand. But if Christ changed your heart, you are a loving person. There's no such thing as the jerk Christian, the Christian that is just a constant jerk to people. That is not such a thing. And so for those of us who kind of have a hard edge life and we try to put it under the guise of Jesus never said, be nice. Love doesn't mean nice. Yeah. The people who say that are jerks. Well, we are supposed to be nice. We are supposed to be kind. We're supposed to be generous toward people. Now, of course, we do have to rebuke. We have to correct, but that's out of love, not out of wanting to be better than somebody else. We take the stuff out of our eye first so that we can do surgery on someone else's eye. And so, yes, love comes in many, many, uh, it's multifaceted. Uh, and loving people sometimes means difficult conversations. It means awkward conversations, but it definitely doesn't mean just dumping people because we don't want to have that tough talk. So he's making it very clear that love is an evidence of abiding in God. That's why we can pray. That's why we can worship him and be confident that we have a relationship with him. It's belief in Christ and loving one another, verse 23. And then look how he closes it in verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. The two go together, abiding in God and God abiding in us. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. I, I, I don't think John is trying to say uh, another way that you know you're a Christian is the spirit kind of just gives you a feeling that you are. The spirit kind of gives you goosebumps and you're like, oh, I was really moved in that worship song. I must be a Christian. No, you could have just really loved the melody. What he means by the spirit is the spirit uses all these evidences and all these tools that John has been talking about. He hasn't been talking about subjective feelings. Look deeply in yourself and see if you can feel uh, the force. You know, like you can just kind of tell you're at one with the universe or with God. That, that's, that's, John hasn't visited that at all. He's looking at external evidences that you can look around and see in your life, like not passing up the needs of someone else or not being hateful toward someone else uh, by not having a, a hateful or murderous heart, but sacrificing yourself for other people in actual ways. Jesus didn't just write a letter about sacrifice. He put himself on a cross. It was physical. It was real. It was demonstrable. You can see it. It was, it was evidence. And so the spirit confirms the truth by these different signs. Let's just run through them really quickly because John's, John's angle here is not to show you that you're out. Again, John's angle is to show you that you're in so that you leave here confident. In verse 10 of chapter 3, by this it is evident who are the children of God. So it's evidence, right? Verse 14, we know that we've passed from death to life if we love the brothers. Loving the brothers is how you know. Verse 16, by this we know love and the love that Christ laid down his life for us. So we don't have to guess what love looks like. We know exactly what it looks like. That means we can discern the evidence. In verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth, that God is greater than our heart. That's how you know it. Verse 24, and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit he has given us. This is not about fuzzy feelings. 
this is not about how up you feel about Christianity. It's not about how you wake up in the morning. It's about objective things that you can look at. The truth of the gospel, that God is able to overcome the condemnation. It's about the truth of how we live out the gospel, that our lives are defined by self-sacrificial giving. Here's what I want us to think about as, as we wrap this up. I want us to think about specifics. He got really specific in the negative example with Cain's murder. He got really specific with Christ's example of giving up his life. He got really specific of giving you an example of uh, you have needs. Someone else doesn't have that need. You're able to meet that need. You do it. And so I want you to start thinking about specific examples. It's not enough for us to go, yeah, yeah, love. Rule number one, love. What does it look like? What are ways this week you can demonstrate love? You're having a hard time sheltering in place because you're in such close proximity without breaks from the same people day in and day out. Perfect testing ground. Perfect testing ground. How do you put other people's needs first? Right? How do you put other people's interests before your own? Uh, how do you, how do you uh, behave yourself on social media? Are there some posts that you should take down? Are there some things that you say out there because it's cyberspace and you assume that because of that, you're not hurting an individual's feelings? Yeah, you are. How do we, how do we post as Christians? How do we argue as Christians? Now, I don't think the answer is delete your account. Don't be on social media because it's only good for arguments. So what? Get in there and argue. Argue like a Christian. Argue like you love the person you're arguing with. Argue like you want to hear their point of view. Argue like you don't assume they're idiots. Argue like you don't assume you're right and they're wrong. Argue like you don't assume you know everything and that other people don't have a perspective to add to the, to the conversation. And I think, why am I harping on social media? Well, because we're stuck in our houses. And one of the primary ways that we're relating to other people is through video, chats, uh, messages, uh, and then social media platforms. And I want to see Christians comporting themselves in love. And uh, here's an important rule to remember. When you write something, you lose intonation. In other words, I can say something harsh, but if I put it in a way where my voice softens and you can see in my face that I'm loving you as I'm saying it, I can get away with harsher words. But if I type that in an email, you know, you can put some emoticons next to it and stuff, but you know, you can put, sometimes we're just put something really hateful and put LOL at the end, like that fixes it. But don't do that. You shouldn't need the LOL at the end or an emoticon to fix it. Try to think about how you can word things in ways that demonstrate that you don't know everything and that the other person that you're talking to, you respect because they're created in God's image. And think about the fact that there are Christians all over the globe, Christians all over the country, the state. There are Christians in your own fellowship, in CFC, that vote the other way. There are Christians within CFC that see the shelter in place differently than you do. Right? There's Christians in CFC that don't take that verse the way you take it. Right? Not everybody is of your particular cloth and how you understand things. And so if you are uh, really a lover of a particular theology, people who don't read those books, they're not necessarily depraved. They're not necessarily jerks. And I get it. Sometimes the memes that we put out there, they're just funny. And we should have a sense of humor. 
we just want to be careful that we're not conveying that other Christians are automatically base or moronic because they don't agree with our position. Let's just start there. If we can't love through social media, how are we going to love in person when the, the people are actually in front of us in need? Oh, we can't. Let's demonstrate that. And let's try to cultivate the friendships within Christian Fellowship Church. Our best buddies shouldn't be the college buddies that we went drinking with. Our best friends should be our church friends, not because they love to do all the hobbies that we love, but because we share Christ. We're the most forgiving community. We're the most understanding community. We all recognize we came from darkness, and so we can forgive darkness and other people. We should be the easiest place to develop long-lasting, deep relationships with one another because the very mark of Christianity is love and not anything else. Let's pray. Father, we recognize how difficult it is that our hearts haven't fully arrived yet to really love one another, but we don't want to just talk about love, sing about love, preach about love, but not actually carry it out in really meaningful ways. In front of a watching world, they should see a difference in us, and that primary difference uh, should be love. Uh, and so we pray that love would come down out of the clouds and uh, materialize in our lives in actual deeds, in actual things that we do uh, to meet other people's needs, to affirm uh, the image of God in other people. And when we're dealing with Christians, to affirm that we're brothers and sisters first before anything else, and that we can disagree on things, but that our fellowship is based. Uh, on something so much deeper, uh, the very love of Jesus Christ demonstrated to us on the cross. Uh, help us to take up our cross and live self-sacrificial lives toward one another, and that as a result, our marriages would be stronger, the way we parent our kids would be healthier, that our families, our household would come out of this whole crisis stronger than they were, not worse than they were, that we know how to spend time in close proximity with one another and actually grow from it not grow apart from it. The world does that. Help us to demonstrate that we have something the world does not have, that we have the love of Jesus Christ uh, in us, proving and showing that we truly do abide in you and you truly do abide in us. As we close in this song, would you work those truths deep into our hearts? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.